he shall have offered wine and cakes. Now every coup for whom such things are done shall have an existence among the living ones, and he shall never perish, and he shall have being like unto that of the holy God. This idea of a bodily resurrection, you're exactly right. And I think the comparison is very apt between Jesus and Osiris. And it's also not just a bodily resurrection. It's a seasonal, yearly resurrection. It goes with the cycles of the seasons. For those people who might be upset, oh, how dare you say that Jesus comes from Osiris? I'll say that we're all working with the same matter of this earth. We're all working with the same seasonality, love, which is... A, it's such a massive concept and the Egyptians use the word love all the time, but love, you know, mer is the word for love, merut. How does one understand this? The force, it's not divinized. It's not something that can, can move about on its own. There's no goddess of love necessarily, though Hathor is often put into that category. And this idea of an Eros childlike, you know, fat cuddly baby kind of, kind of God is also a very Egyptian thing, and that would be Horus the child, held by his mother, um, a mother's love for that child, a child's love for that mother, very strong bond, an unbreakable bond. The old Levantine traditions, Jewish traditions, which have picked many things up um, from Mesopotamian traditions. This stuff is deep and it's messy. Jesus, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many other Egyptologists, is very much an amalgamation of both Osiris and Horus. Both of those are melded together. Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today, I'm joined by Egyptologist Kara Cooney, Professor of Egyptian Art and Architecture at UCLA, and the chair of the Department of Near Eastern Language and Cultures at UCLA. And today we're going to talk about Osiris, which is an interesting topic because me and Derek have been talking about this. Me and Derek have done videos on some of these Egyptian texts and how they depict Osiris. And it's people who aren't, aren't experts at all. We're just two guys just reading some texts and making our own opinions. And, and I'm like, this sounds so much like Jesus. I mean, you have the, in the, in the, in the one text, I, I can't cite it right now, but it's, uh, you might know what I'm talking about. There's this, it, it's in the Egyptian book of the dead collection. And it's like, those who offer the cakes in my name and drink the wine in my name shall forever have eternal life. I'm like, that sounds like a Eucharist. And then there's, there's just so much resurrection, dying, rebirth, uh, a lot of these tropes that we're seeing, and, and I'm just going to start it off like this, because there's a Bible scholar who I love, Bar I, mean, I love the guy, but I was talking to him about this, this dying and rising God thing. He just seems to shut it down completely. And I, and he said that there's no dying and rising gods that have a bodily resurrection. And I, he said the Egyptians weren't hoping for a bodily resurrection. They're hoping for another realm. And I, then I said to him, well, then why did they wrap their dead as mummies? And I'm not kidding. He just looked at me and said, you're going to have to ask an Egyptologist that. So I just like, you know what? Good idea. That's what I'm going to do. So here we are now. I want That's the first thing I want to ask you about is what is, is he wrong? And I'm not talking crap or anything. I love Bart Ehrman, but like, he's obviously like, I just doesn't seem like he's, he sees what I see. Maybe I don't know, but here's the expert. So let's hear what you have to say. 
yeah, you, you got an Egyptologist on, so we're, yeah. we're good. Um, this idea of a bodily resurrection, you're exactly right. And I think the comparison is very apt between Jesus and Osiris. And it's also not just a bodily resurrection. It's, um, it's a seasonal, yearly resurrection. It goes with the cycles of the seasons. Egyptian seasons are a little different from Levantine seasons where, where Jesus was uh, sacrificed and reborn. But but they're still seasonal. You still have a, a spring, a winter, a kind of a you know an emerging or a fall. You still have these things. It's just based on the inundation. But I was just talking to somebody about this. They're like, well, what does it mean that you have this <clears throat> this this bodily mummified bodily recreation? But do they really believe that they need all this physicality? Does it really work that way? And I would say it's a it's a little complicated. It's it's um, first of all, the bodily resurrection is something only five percent of ancient Egyptians got to do. So this was a rich person's game, if oh, you like. Interesting. Mummification, like how many people do you know who know how to mummify a body? We all have some embalmer friends out there. I mean. I do. I don't know if you do, <laughs> but there are people who know how to embalm bodies. It's it's a skill. It's not super hard. It's not magical. It's it's if you have the right chemicals, the right materials, the right time, then you can you can preserve a body. Taxidermy is associated with this too, but it takes time, and it's not something that just happens. I also don't want to present the ancient Egyptians as being simple-minded or primitive in that they believe that if you didn't have the body, you just cease to exist. I think that's too much. So I think the the resurrection of the body for Osiris is very much like Jesus in that you need the resurrection to create the miracle in people's eyes. It needs to be seen as such, kind of like when Jesus appears to his apostles and they're like, you know, so Thomas is like, I don't believe until I see it and touch it. And then I'll believe it. And then Jesus comes and he's like, see it and touch it. And, and then all of a sudden it's real to him. Now, Jesus doesn't hang out and stay around the body, the production of the body. It's like, you have to produce a body, right? Like, like a murder yeah. mystery, but you're producing a living body, but the production of the body, the resurrection of it is as a miracle proof, if you like. And I would even compare Osiris's rebirth to, um, I grew up Roman Catholic and, you know, when you see how saints are, are made and what some yeah. of the parameters are, like we could Google right now, how do you become a saint? Number one, you have to have a corrupt, an incorruptible body and they open your tomb up and they look at that shit and they're like, oh, look, she looks beautiful or whatever it is. You know, her face and skin is all preserved. And if you have that, then that's, that's proof number one, that you are of the gods you are divine, you are special, you are not just, you are not corruptible and human. And, and Osiris and Jesus are both very much like that. So whether both of them need their bodies over the long term, I mean, in a sense, it's just a yearly thing. They have to keep coming back. And I think the physicality of it is important in both cases, because both are seasonal, both are the spring, both are the new life, both are the plants that we eat, and the bread and wine the bread that we eat, the wine that we drink, and Osiris is no different. So I would put it on in that vein. And I would also say that for those people who might be upset, oh, how dare you say that Jesus comes from Osiris? I'll say that we're all working with the same matter of this earth. We're all working with the same seasonality. Some may be in the Southern hemisphere versus the Northern hemisphere, but we all got seasons unless we're at the equator. 
and we all have the same basic chemical structures, carbon-based life forms and all this stuff. There's only so much difference that's going to happen. And so to have people develop similar religious belief systems based on a seasonal agricultural reality, I don't think is that crazy. What's yeah. interesting about this one is that I think because of how close in space and time these two things are um, connected to, they're, they're, how close in space and time these creation mythologies actually are, I think you can make direct connections and say, oh yeah, so Cyrus influenced the Jesus mythology directly. And I would, I would stand by that. Yeah. yeah and I, I was, so I just wanted to uh, pull up the text that I was referring to in the beginning. I should have had this ready because this would have been made more sense. I found it too. The exact, oh, the great. exact one. Okay. It's, it says from the papyrus of new British uh -huh. museum, number 10,477. Okay. Sheet 16. And then on the bottom, it says bottom toward, not, not the bottom, but like towards the bottom, it says, um, ceremony. He should be ceremonial pure. He shall have burnt the incense before Ra. He shall have offered wine and cakes and roasted fowl for the journey of the deceased in the boat of Ra. Now every coup for whom such things are done shall have an existence among the living ones and he shall never perish and he shall have being like unto that of the holy God. And I first, when I first saw this, I just was like, that sounds like something I would hear at church, like in, yeah. in the Catholic church, like take, drink the, eat, eat the bread and drink the wine. And if you take part in this, you have eternal life. That's what that sounds like. Like, I mean, yeah, growing up Catholic, all, and, and the more I study Egyptian ritual, and you see the incense and how the incense has to go to the four corners. And then when next time you see the priest doing this with the incense in the four corners, you're like, oh my God, it's ancient Egyptian. And it is. And, and the frankincense comes from Saudi, but it's it comes from Arabia, the lands of Arabia, right? But it's still something the Egyptians were trading in as well, that... So it, there's so many ritual connections. There's so many liturgical and spoken connections. Um, yeah, we should write more books about these things, but and they're considered not, so hot that we only allow podcasts. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny how that is, but like the geographic location, I mean, Canaan was basically part of the Egyptian empire for like a thousand years. It's not that crazy to just be like, well, some of these ideas are kind of floating around in the air. By the time Christianity rolls around in the first century, uh, so a lot of these ancient uh, Coptic texts are Christian. A lot mm -hmm. of their but they're and, Egyptian too, and they're written in Egyptian, right? So right. they're they're a little bit of both. And I have a wonderful book called Early Christian Magic that's all in Coptic Egyptian, and it includes Egyptian gods and the Christian divinities in a Trinity form or Mother Mary. You know, there's still divinities in my opinion in the Christian theology, but um. Yeah, it's it's fun stuff. It's it can get very complicated, really fast. Now, so Egypt seems to be not even just for what we're talking about in the Judeo-Christian concept, but like writers like Diodorus of Sicily really likes wants people to know Egypt is a special place for religious purposes. The yeah. the ideas of religion are coming out of Egypt all over the place. Um, what do you what do you think that do you think this is kind of the same thing happening with these other religions in the uh, Levant, maybe? I think everywhere, every place has religion. Everywhere where there's people, there's going to be some spirituality first. Anywhere where there's quote unquote civilized people, there's going to be religion, something that's institutionalized. And 
and you know Herodotus went to Egypt in the fifth century and said that Egypt was more religious than any place on earth. And so I would say that the Egyptians excelled at creating two things, and they're not mutually exclusive. These two things they they can be separated from one another. So number one, the Egyptians created a skilled priestly status group <clears throat> who passed their knowledge on generationally and they built upon that knowledge such that you could do more and more and more with it. So it wasn't just an oral tradition where you get it all in your head and you pass it on to the next shaman, which simplifies and limits what you're able to create, reproduce, and connect with the next generation. It limits the number of people you can work with to create your magical, spiritual, religious institution. It can grow. And so, and I'll make it very simple about why. <clears throat> in ancient Egypt, the geography is such that you're protected on all four sides and you have a continuity of leadership. You don't have a whole lot of, in, of external invasions. And then inside you have the Nile. And so you don't have a lot of internal competition. And within that more safe geographic landscape, you don't have a lot of warlording and competition. You don't have people trying to steal somebody else's farm. Everybody's kind of drunk and fat and happy on their cheap grains and doing okay. And in that world space with a big population where everyone's drunk and full, Egyptian rulers spend more on weapons of the mind than they do on weapons of the body. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in Mesopotamia or Syria or the Italian peninsula or Greece, if you are a leader, you need to innovate on how you're going to get a flaming rock into somebody's uh, fortress. You're going to create some sort of siege weaponry, maybe. You're going to create siege bridges. You're going to create new kinds of arrows. You're going to create all kinds of stuff. You're going to create the chariot. You're going to use the horse in a different way. And there's all kinds of innovation and material investment in these things. Egyptians invested less in such things because they didn't need to. But what they did need to invest in to keep their large population of drunk, happy people in check was a whole bunch of weapons of the mind. And so this is the second part. So if the first part is Egypt is able to, in it, well, it overlaps. Okay, but they're able to invest in this priestly ongoing um, group that they're pouring money into. They're pouring money into temples. They're pouring money into pyramid spaces. They're, they're investing into this and they're putting R&D into it. Whatever you believe in ritual magic, spirituality, all of these things. It's, you know, if, if you have believers in there and people think they're getting something out of their ritual investment, then, you know, you're going to put more R&D into it and be like, oh, we we created this new ritual that gets us this new thing or whatever it is. Um, and so you create these weapons of the mind so that people believe that the guy who built that pyramid is superhuman and that he is of the gods. And otherwise, how could that pyramid come into being, right? You don't have, you have extraordinary structures in other places, but there's not the time from warlording to put as much into it. So there's, there's that. The, the second thing that, that the Egyptians are really excelling at doing is making that exclusive. So, so you only allow some people to be involved in this game. It's a, it's a social exclusionary practice. So you know, when you're in middle school and, you know, some kids are popular and then you're not part of, you're not at that lunch table. It's kind of like that. So there's a top 5% of ancient Egyptian society who are all initiated into these religious systems and other people 
they have separate religious traditions, but they're looking up and they're not a part of all of that. And so Egypt, and I want to separate the two because I don't want to say that the power systems are always making the religious systems without value, but <laughs> but they often do, right? So I, I'm saying that to be respectful of the Egyptian religious traditions as they exist, but socially as they're used as weapons of power and control, they often subvert these religious traditions. But in short, it means that from the perspective of a Levantine person or a Mesopotamian person or somebody coming from Greece or Rome, they're going to look at Egypt and be like, damn, look at all of that they have built about religion. They know more than we know, it seems. They have more names of more gods. They know what the afterlife is. They've mapped it out. They know step A to Z. They know it all. They they know how to purify a person. They know how to, they know the spell for turning somebody into a flame in the afterlife. They know how to connect with the dead. They know all these things. And so for somebody coming from a tradition where not as much has been invested by the state, however you define that, it's going to seem like you're coming from a more simplistic religious system and that the Egyptians have it figured out. Add to that the social exclusivity component and Egyptians are very simple or, or humans are very simple people, right? We humans are like, oh my God, the Egyptians not only have it figured out, but not everyone gets access to it. And I'm going to join this cult, this ISIS cult, and I'm going to get like a Scientology cult. I'm going to get to the highest levels and I'm going to figure it all out. And so it's kind of like the Egyptians have hacked how to get people to believe in religion yeah. um, and to compete with each other through religion more than anybody else. And to say that Christianity did not feed off of that at some point would be ridiculous, um, which yeah. is why Christian, you know, Jesus comes in and he's like, we should all be poor. We should all give away our money. We should all do this. And then what does that translate into in my world and you, the world you grew up with into a Vatican covered with gold? covered with precious incense and imported goods and colonizing the world and all of this stuff. And yes, Pope Francis is different. He's like going to wear his simple shoes, but that's not what the last Pope did. And they're all covering themselves in this, you know, incredible silk and satin. This is not what Jesus preached, but this doesn't right. matter. That's the ritual of Egypt. That's the ritual of power. And so you can, you can say, oh my God, Jesus is there certain things, saying certain things. But when you institutionalize that's when Egypt really comes in and you start to, does he, does Jesus say, oh, you need to have the incense in the four directions? No. Does he say you have to do my spell in a certain way? Because what is the Eucharist creation, but a spell Egyptian style, right? right. This is all in my opinion, based on Egyptian magical tradition. And that's what the mass is. That's what an exorcism is. There's all kinds of Christian magic that if you become a priest, you become initiated into and you understand how these things work. Last rites, it's a magical rite. And, and the way you set up the sacred circle and the four directions, that's all ancient Egyptian, all of it. What you wear, the hat you put on, the stuff you do. Um, so I would say it's about the institutionalization rather than the first guy, Jesus, whoever he was as a historical person, we could argue that for forever, rather than him, it's it's the co-option of his message and then the institutionalization of it. So there are two different things, if that makes any sense. That was great. And the, and because you, I'm thinking in my head, there's this obelisk that's sitting in St. Peter's Square. Yes. And if yes. you look at it, that's hieroglyphics on there. Yes. That was brought there by Augustus after the Battle of Actium. And it's sitting there in the middle of the the, the capital of the Christian world. Like, what is that doing there? What is it even, what's on that thing? What does it say? Probably something about Ra, you know? And so 
Egypt stands in the middle of all this, all religion of the Mediterranean as like the originators of the, of, of magic, of religion, of these secret rites of initiation, mystery cults, all that stuff. Egypt is where it's at. And Alexandria really becomes like the center for all this information. The, the, the Septuagint gets written there. Like we have entire religions being invented in this location. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about the story of Osiris? Because I know you have, I know there's there's a story about the the uh, Heliopolitan Aeneid. There's these mm-hmm. nine gods, and that mm-hmm. Amon is the creator. But what? How does how does Osiris become the? Osi- I shouldn't just say Osiris. Osiris and Isis. Yeah. How do they become? Because she's almost just as is maybe even just as important as he is. Yeah, and when you when you see how Osiris religion spreads the ancient Medi- throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, around the same time that the Jesus cult is spreading around the Mediterranean world, it's called an Isis cult. And yeah. if you read Apuleius's uh, Metamorphosis or Golden Ass, then you see when he gets to the final level, you know, his initiation, he realizes that it's Osiris that Isis has been leading him towards. The two are very much part of two sides of the same coin. Um, now the Aeneid. The Heliopolitan Aeneid is a great story, a rip-roaring tale, and Osiris is there and and a very important part of it. And I'll connect this to um, Jesus in in the end. So it begins with the god Atum, not Amun. There's another creation mythology that belongs to Amun, but but we'll we'll stick to this one that is Atum, who dwells in Heliopolis, is a sun god. And Atum is floating around in pre-created morass of blackness, um, primeval matter just pushed on itself, infinite space, but it's all kind of just there. And he, he's there in this darkness and he thinks I could create myself. And the Egyptians are not shy about giving a sexual component to this. You can't create without sex, right? The Hebrew Bible, other things, you know, it's all like, I think with my mind and I create it. No, no, no. The Egyptians are like, I'm going to have sex with myself. And he's like, I think I can create myself. So he stretches out his female element, his hand, And he stretches that out to his phallus and he has sex with himself. He creates a sexual release, a big bang, if you like. And the efflux from this this masturbatory event, he then finds a way, and there's images of autofellatio and papyri all over the place. You can Google this if you want. Um, he He then sneezes and spits out a void. And when he sneezes and spits, the the sneezing is he sneezes out air. And that's Shu, Shu, the god of light and the god of air, the god of empty space. And then he, sne- he spits out Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. So you have like dryness and moisture. Those two, Shu and Tefnut, have actual sex, um, not just hand and penis, but sex. And then they create Newt and Geb. And Geb is the earth god, opposite of a Greco-Roman system. And Newt is the sky goddess. They have sex and they create four uh, divine creatures. And those are Osiris, Isis, Seth, and Nephtis. So you have brother-sister pairs who then link up with each other. Now, Osiris is the one who's named king. And Seth is always very angry about this. And there's the story from Plutarch, very late. Um, who tells us about how he tricked Osiris into trying out a coffin he had made for him. And then he kills him and then he cuts him up into 42 different pieces and he spreads them out all over Egypt. And Isis has to go mourning, weeping, collecting the pieces and finds every piece of her husband except for the penis, 
she binds him together into the world's first mummy. Uh, and then she magically creates the penis that she puts on. You can't have him without that, right? So she puts him all back together. And, and then you see in Egyptian mythologies that are afraid to talk about the murder and the death have no problems talking about the resurrection and the rebirth. And they show Osiris lying prone on a beer, a funerary beer, and his penis rises up into the erect position. He's ready to be reborn. And his hand reaches out to connect with that thing. And then he also, like Atum before him, recreates himself. He rebirths himself. And at the moment of his rebirth, when his sperm comes forth, Isis turns herself into a bird flies up on top of the penis, collects the semen into herself, and she then conceives Horus, who is the next god, the god of the living. And you could argue that this entire ennead of creation is there to understand created space, uh, light and dark, wet and dry, sun and you know all of these things, but also to create the living king on earth. And one must die that would be Osiris, and go into the land of the dead as a physical dead death of divinity. And then you have Horus, who's there on earth, who must fight his uncle Seth. And there's a whole set of tales about that. But Jesus, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many other Egyptologists, is very much an amalgamation of both Osiris and Horus. Both of those are melded together. And, and again, it's not necessarily the preachings of Jesus because, you know, the guy's got to get crucified. All of the institutionalization of his religion is created after his death by other people who have other mythological and religious streams to pull from. And they're very much pulling from the Egyptian mythologies of Osiris and, Je and Horus and connecting Jesus to that. So Jesus isn't preaching, I am Osiris, I am Horus. Yes, there's bread involved and, and wine and things like that. But but it's um it's the people after him who are who are making those connections. Yeah, it seems like they're trying to apply to Jesus a father, son, holy spirit type of thing yes. that we see in Egypt. Yes. Um, and and yeah, and you can even add to this this uh conception part. It is a divine conception in both schema because when Osiris is recreating himself. And Horus is of his efflux. He's having sex with himself. Isis is just there at the last moment to collect the seed and put it into herself. She is a vessel. She's not there to resurrect him. He does it to himself. And his, his um, seminal recreation of himself as Horus, he does that. And so to see Mary being impregnated by this Holy Spirit, this ability to to conceive something that is not of her own doing and is not from a sexual act. That's actually quite Egyptian in, in my understanding. And the Egyptians have all of these discussions of, you know, the Holy spirit could be like a Ba, a Ba spirit. The gods of Egypt were believed to have a physical presence an animal presence, a statue presence, but they were also different kinds of spirits, a Ka spirit, a Ba spirit. The Ba spirit can move. And what if the Holy Spirit is like a Kaaba Egyptian kind of thing that can go from the God and then move into a, another entity? There's all kinds of ways you can come up with the mechanics of how this works. Because again, Jesus doesn't preach about, I was born of the Virgin Mary. You know, you get that in Luke and you don't have that in other sources. You really see that developed in, in I would argue, Egyptian sources. Again, I'm not a New Testament scholar, so. Yeah, but that makes sense. You'd have to ask other people about but that. 
also Harpocrates, or uh, Horus is identified. I'm not sure when this happens, but he there's there's models of Horus as Eros. And like, and your connection Horus, would be well, his so it's like this guy. Okay, so this is I'm going to go deep for a second, and I want I don't know what I want to get your opinion. I'll let, I'll let you know what I think. Don't worry. Yeah. So <laughs> Eros, the Platonists are obsessed with Eros. If you read if you read the uh, Symposium by Plato, Socrates is like Eros is the only god that I worship. He has more power than Zeus because he can just take an arrow and make you fall in love. And that's it. He's got power over the elements. Hmm. So they're, they're really working up this idea of Eros being way more important than people give him credit for. So I'm thinking Platonism obviously becomes the thing. Middle Platonism is the thing for Christianity time period. And I'm wondering if Eros, if, if Horus is being identified with Eros are they doing it in the platonic sense is saying that he's the God of love who has power over the elements. And then it makes me wonder in the relation to Jesus, where Jesus is always talking about, you know, love your neighbor or, you know, uh, love is the greatest thing you can do. And, and some people, I bring this up. Sometimes people will say, but there's a difference between agape love and Eros love. So I'm like, okay, fine. Fair point. But still like, where, what, what do you think about that? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a classicist, so I'm not going to I'm not going to get into the weeds with you about forms of love. So you can you can be relaxed there. But but I'll go into, you know, Egyptological streams are so much older that, you know, however you understand. Love, which is it's such a massive concept and the Egyptians use the word love all the time. But love, you know, mare is the word for love. Merut. Um, how does one understand this? Um, as a force, it's not divinized. It's not something that can can move about on its own. There's no goddess of love necessarily, though Hathor is often put into that category. But no one calls her Nebet Merut or anything like that that I'm aware of. So, so they're different. These are different streams. But like this idea of, because you you were talking about Harpocrates, you were talking about Horus the child. And this idea of an Eros childlike, you know, fat, cuddly baby kind of kind of God is also a very Egyptian thing. And that would be Horus the child held by his mother, um, a mother's love for that child, a child's love for that mother, very strong bond, an unbreakable bond. Um, you know, that that kind of thing exists. But you bringing up Socratic uh, or Platonic um, philosophical streams it's wonderful to see this this Jesus cult spread throughout the Mediterranean region and then pick some things up from Egypt, pick some things up from the Greek mainland and islands, pick some things up from the old Levantine traditions, Jewish traditions, which have picked many things up um, from Mesopotamian traditions um, and Egyptian traditions. So it's this stuff goes this stuff is deep. And um, and it's messy creation of a whole new religion. Nothing's going to ever be built on on a pure new beginning. There is no such thing, but the people who are creating this new religion are often saying that this is a pure new beginning. It would be like when the Christian Spanish came to Mexico and they put their churches everywhere, but where do they put their churches? If you go to Mexico City downtown, you'll see that the Catedral is built on the Templo Mayor, the Aztec Templo Mayor, and they build it right on top. If you go to Cholula, you'll see a church built on top of a giant pyramid. So these things are not 
you you want to claim what's already sacred. You don't want to have a a complete break because people want to go to the place they believe is already magical. That's how you're going to get the most followers. So, yeah. So it's, it's, almost, it's as messy as it could possibly be. It's almost as if they're doing that on purpose because they, they the Christians are thinking this these places have power and they're they mean something to people. Like the Mithraeums were often transferred or turned into churches. Yeah. And yeah, that, that I think that's just how Christianity was looking at the world and re, and and trying to include all these other, you know, uh, paths. I guess yeah. you call it. That makes sense. Yeah, there's a wonderful church in Rome called San Clemente, and there's the I think it's like a 12th century church, and then underneath is an 8th century church, and then underneath that, and you can visit all of this as a tourist, is a Mithraeum. Uh, oh, which wow. is an Iranian mystery cult. And then there's things like Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. That's a church in Rome. And it's obviously Church of St. Mary on top of a Minerva temple. And how wonderful wow. is that? That, that they're is not even church. hiding it. They're no. like, this is St. Mary on top of the Minerva temple, everyone. So come along and worship Mary. And Minerva, if you if you had to say there was a God who embodied the Holy Spirit, it'd be Minerva. Oh, I like that. Because she has that, she's like the war and wisdom. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, what's which which reminds me because you mentioned about the Horus is like the divine child being born, yeah. and there's a there's a passage about it in the Hermetica text, and it's like it reminds me the imagery, not the text itself, but like the imagery. It reminds me of Luke a little bit with like Mary and uh, you know, she's being told that she's going to be give birth to the Son of God and it's like this image of the divine mother or I mother completely God. agree. And yeah. the way that it's shown as and from all the way back in the old kingdom, where you have the mother holding the child on her lap, that's exactly what you're going to see depicted again and again and again in a Christian context with Mary holding Jesus on her lap. And what a wonderful idea. And so very strange to have a God who is so young that he must be protected, who is vulnerable who needs the divine feminine to step in and use her Wonder Woman force field and be like, back off, I've got this. And that that somehow connects with us so much. You don't want the God to necessarily always be Superman from the very beginning. You need that vulnerability so that we can connect with him. So that when we have a sick child whom we're holding in our embrace, I got my kids sick home today, then you know you you connect with that Mother Mary and she's, She's there protecting a God, yes, but she's protecting him from the scorpions and the snakes and all of these things. So it gives the divine feminine that much more to do in the mythology than you see in a lot of the Levantine systems. And the the Levant had their own divine feminine before Yahweh cults killed her. But this this Christianity is a way of bringing that back, which I really like. That's it's well, well, well said because you know the Asherah tradition is obviously archaeology shows us this was, this was, oh, th yeah. this was a thing. Uh, even if the text doesn't try to, even if they took it from away from the text, it's we we know it was there. And plus, the way that they uh, ban it in like yeah. the, the Book of Kings is like, and the king brought back the Asherah poles, and the next king took them back down again. Like, okay, this is a big deal. This was part yeah. of their culture. This was, a, yeah. And I was thinking about how you mentioned how Isis is the one that redeems Osiris and then he has the erection. And I, I was reading, um, 
James Frazier's book about religion. Um, mm-hmm. Golden Bough. Golden yeah. Bough. Yeah, he says that yeah. when, when corn would grow, people thought Osiris was having an erection every yes. year. <laughs> yes. That's the thing. Is that that's really? Wow. Oh yeah, and there's this lettuce that grows straight up, and it's called the Min lettuce, and Min is a another fertility god uh, in the Egyptian schema, and it gives off this milky white liquid. <laughs> There's all kinds of things in nature that we can connect to. We are of nature, we human beings, so it's no surprise. But yes, there's all kinds of straight growing uh, vegetal things that can be connected to erections. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Plutarch talking about Osiris being this like moisture and the, the Nile flooding and these are all connected with Isis and Osiris. And there's so, so there's an agricultural layer. Is it like these gods are representing the phenomena of nature itself. Is that what it is? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting to some of the earliest ideas of religion and humanity and where does God come from and how are we to understand it? Is God the thunder or is God controlling the thunder? Is God the efflux of the Nile or does he make it happen and he's somewhere else? And, you know, is, is ancient Egyptian religion an animist religion? Is it, is that animal actually the God? Is the river actually the, contain the spirit of the God? And the ancient Egyptians, in my opinion, and maybe I'd have to talk with somebody who's more of a religious scholar than I am, but they don't seem to busy their minds too much with such questions. The, the river is the river, and it also is connected to a number of different divinities. The, the wheat is the wheat that you eat, very practical, made into bread and beer, but it's also associated with Osiris. There's no beginning and end. There's no reason to try to philosophize uh, any sorts of complicated permutations of how it works. And it can be both things at once. The Egyptians are brilliant at having overlapping systems of meaning that might even in our Western sense seem contradictory like having overlapping systems of creation mythology. There's, there's multiple creation mythologies and this, some, and they come from different divinities in different places. Are they, are they competing with each other? Not necessarily. And in the Egyptian mindset, they can all be true simultaneously and the God can be dead and alive simultaneously. And that, I mean, I, I, I always remember growing up Catholic, seeing the magical ritual of the of Jesus going into the host, the Eucharist ritual, which is a magical ritual. And next time you're in a church, follow it closely, but how it has to be done in a particular way. Things have to be said at a particular time. Lift up the glass and the cup and all this particular time. But I remember as a child, always a skeptical child, saying, wait, so Jesus is in there. And, and I asked my dad and he goes, yes, he is. And I, I without doubt, right? And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> And I'm like, well, how can that be? And I remember what he said, because it's such, it seems like a cop out at the same time that it's how we do this religious thing. And he goes, well, that's the mystery. That's the point. That's the point. The fact that there can be a spirit in that bread that we all eat and that this can be happening in a million churches around the earth simultaneously. We're all eating that Jesus and that it gets in there somehow. That's the, that's the grace. That's the mystery. And that kind of notion is um, it's the way that human beings square all of these physical realities with the spirit and the divinity that's all around. So in the same way that the Egyptians did not try 
to create these deep philosophical treatises of whether or not you needed a mummified body to live and have an existence in the afterlife. They didn't. They didn't say, do you need the body? Do you not need the body? The rich people had the body. The other people did not. Does that mean the poor people didn't have an afterlife? Doesn't seem so. But they don't, they don't waste brain cells on it. So they're not going to waste brain cells on that. And so they're not going to waste brain cells on the question that you just asked me. It's a very Western understanding. I guess the most interesting thing for me then would be, whom does it serve to ask such questions? Our intellectual philosophical tradition is very different from an ancient Egyptian one. And you can then ask what kind of patriarchal institution does that serve? I'm not saying Egyptian wasn't a patriarchal institution, it was, but it's a different kind. And, and so that kind of argument and rhetoric, you're not going to see as much of it in Egypt, whereas instead you're going to see more of that Scientology, no, this, you're not initiated, not for you. Kind of well, thing. you know where else you see that at? You see that, and it's, and Diodorus, once again, I love Diodorus because he li he's looking around the way I look around at these things and comparing them all and contrasting them. Well, he points out that the mysteries of Eleusis near Athens, they have this idea of Demeter being represented by the grain and Bacchus as the grape, the vine. And I'm almost like, oh, grain and vine. There's your there's your Eucharist right there, represented by yeah. these two gods. And in, the, and in this mystery religion, if you're only the initiated are saved, everyone else is an outsider. Yeah. And then there's even an Orphic text that says, uninitiated, get out. And I'm like, ooh. Like there's that, like you said, the Scientology. If you're not initiated, you're not one of us, you don't have eternal life. You're not gonna go to the what do they say it's called? Uh Eleusis Fields. They yeah. have map, the map of Hades where there's the Tartarus pit on this side. And then up here is the the fields of Eleusis where all the good people go. And then here over here is a different place. And over here is a different place. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Like they, they not only thought of heaven like everyone goes to the same place, but they have different parts of this place. Instead yeah. of having a heaven and a hell, it's like they're all in Hades, but they're just different parts of Hades. Like That's interesting. I mean, the other thing I think of, and here I'm going to be like a super cynic, but I think there's a point to it that when religion was supported by the state like a king a government in some way the priests didn't have to worry about getting followers they didn't they had everything they needed they had their money provided to them their temple their housing all their stuff they they were fine and they could pass it on generationally and it was no big deal but once you have an iron age imperial reality and religion becomes so very um diffused and competitive and there's all these different kinds and once the egyptians in my world pull their funding of religion then you have all these priests who are like oh shit we gotta create followers we need to get same way we do with your podcast and facebook and social media yes. like, i gotta say something outlandish i gotta make people come and listen to me what am i gonna do and everyone in the mediterranean in this time period probably from like the sixth century bce you know, and, and then beyond are like, how do we get followers? How do we get people to think, oh my God, they have to come to us. And the ones who won out in many ways are those who are like, if you come to us, you will be saved. Otherwise you will burn forever in a horrific purgatory and then find ways to prove it. So a lot of this is bare economics of popularity and trying to get people to come to you. Um, I'm not saying that Jesus isn't said to have said these things in his gospel texts, but, um, you know, that there's also different prophets 
and spiritual teachers who are competing in their way as well. Yeah. So Speak, speaking of that, different prophets and spiritual uh, preachers doing this. I don't know if you're aware of because you're just you're not like a, a Christian scholar, but I, maybe you've heard of this. There's a there's a there was a preacher called the Nassim preacher from the second century. He I wasn't he's not from Egypt. He's from Turkey. So you might, okay. might out of here, but he has a, listen, I actually have it. I just pulled it up. I have it saved. He, there was a, a Homeric hymn to Addis and everyone knew this is a famous hymn, but according to Irenaeus and Hippolytus, two different sources write about this. He took this hymn to Addis, crossed off the name and wrote Jesus on it. <laughs> you see what it says. This is the hymn right here. It's blessed one, crone of born. This is the actual hymn to Addis. But according to Irenaeus, they took this hymn. and, and we, So we don't have the actual one that he wrote. That's wonderful. We can, we can just like put together. He even says, all of Egypt calls you Osiris. Right. So it's a synchronistic hymn. Right. But they're syncing all these different gods together and saying, all of you are really just the Christ. Yeah. And so. We have evidence that early Christians in the second century were doing this. We're pointing out and saying, Osiris, yeah, that was Jesus the whole time. Oh, yeah, Addis, yeah, that was Jesus. Don't worry. Yeah. We, we, yeah. You, you, we got the real one here, guys. We figured it out. But it's like, I can see why. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that the Christians invent, I think that is, and the Egyptians helped them do this, but they really perfected is this idea of a devil. Oh, a, a, an absolute evil to there's no better marketing tool than to say and there's still like look at evangelical christianity in the united states right now right there is no better marketing tool than saying that someone is following the devil with the antichrist whatever it is and that's going to pull people to repent to continually try to purify themselves to come to the church and cleanse whatever it is but the egyptians if you look at book of caverns book of gates um Amduat, there's this idea of Apophis who's going to swallow the sun in the sixth hour of night so that there is no more creation. And in this, in, in, throughout the 12 hours of night, you see the sun god moving through and you'll see people being roasted alive, people getting their heads cut off. It's just this very scary place. And the Christians then use this idea of an afterlife realm of great terror and, and worry and anxiety, but just pain forever pain and the idea of non-existing like they, they've created this this goddess who will eat your heart if you can't pass the tribunal who is part crocodile part hippo part lion and she will consume you so th this idea of, of this hellfire right yeah exactly that's what <laughs> Amet, the devourer the devourer the right devourer. And you, Ooh, and you that sounds keep, sounds like know, really scary right? doesn't it and you can keep people in line with that very, very well. And I think Christianity then takes some of those ideas and not one-to-one -one necessarily, but you, we could right. find some hellfire sorts of ideas and, and go on with that. But like, there's that that's one thing I think that they're incredibly successful with. And that's why Christianity has this, this strength, this pull that it wouldn't necessarily have. The last thing I want to ask you about, because you mentioned the devil thing, is you hear we hear a lot of talk about set and there being some connection with set being like the devil satan uh some people i've even heard some people say that that would satan and set might be cognates maybe i don't know how true that is but what are your what can you tell us about that 
there, there's a lot I could say, and it's it's really interesting to see that when the Iron Age is really the age of empire in Egypt is flourishing, Seth, who was a god of disorder, a god of the Levant, a god with red hair, a god of anger, a Mars kind of god, no big deal, right, becomes demonized. And so let me go back when I'm saying, oh, the Christians didn't invent the idea of hell, but they arguably perfected it. The Christians, in my opinion, do not invent the idea of the devil either. This has pre-existed their philosophy. And this idea of the devil was very much an Iron Age contextual trope. As people are getting burned and pillaged by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then then the Persians, then Alexander the Great comes along, then the Romans are going to be there. I mean, the world is just on fire. You can talk about losing retirement accounts. I mean, you're losing your children, your house, your everything, everything's gone. It's it's a really hard time to be alive. And this idea of there being an evil roaming the landscape and being out there is is very, very much a part of people's thoughts and anxieties. And there are temples dedicated to Seth on the Egyptian landscape that have been there for, you know, a thousand years or something like that. And then you start around... I, I, I wish people could date a chisel strike when somebody is removing a name or removing an image. It's hard to do. But you could argue that Seth starts to become demonized in the 6th, 5th centuries BCE. And that's when you start to see the removal of this god from a religious landscape. And what was a god of disorder and great strength, you know, you know who loves Seth is the sun god. And when there's the big tale of the contendings of Horus and Seth and the gods are all collected at the tribunal and they're like, who should rule the strong man Seth or the son of the king before Horus, who's just a little child. And everyone's like, well, it should be Horus. That's legally right. And the sun god is like, uh-uh, it should be Seth because Seth is the one at the front of my boat who kills Apophis every night. And if I don't have him, I am nowhere. So you guys, we should really pick Seth. So in wow. from the Egyptian, yes. So Seth is, is considered a foe of the devil, but becomes amalgamated in people's minds with the devil to those who are not initiated in the more complex religious traditions of, of solar, 12 hours of nights and things, 12 hours of night and things like that. So they, they just start to see Seth and Apophis as the same, even though Seth is the one who kills Apophis. By the sixth, fifth, fourth, third centuries, who is speared is Seth. And it's quite ironic that the one who, who killed the enemy of the sun god is then perceived as being the enemy of the sun god himself. But that's your birth of the devil, in a way. I did a whole documentary back in the day, like 15 years ago on the Discovery Channel called Birth of the Devil. And you can still find it on Amazon. It was a TV show called Out of Egypt. And it was a whole lot of fun. I, I interviewed a priest and a mom. I interviewed all kinds of people. And, um, and this idea that the devil is invented in Egypt or in, in that doesn't exist in the mind of most people, this true ultimate evil. It's not something that we generally go to. The, the Egyptians, I think, went on their way to creating that. And then the fear of the Iron Age imp imperial scourges really brought that home in people's minds. And then when Christianity comes along, it becomes perfected. Yeah. And, um, there's this idea that Seth is somehow related to Yahweh in a way because oh yes oh yeah yeah what's the what's the deal with that 
This is, so last, Seth, this is the last time I'll ask you, I promise. <laughs> no promise. Seth, Yahweh, El, you know, these gods of the desert, of the Levantine spaces, of rain-fed mountain lands, gods of thunder, gods of storms, they're all connected. And Seth is thought to be a god of red hair and a god of the eastern delta. He's a god of the Levant. He's a god, he's oh. a foreign god in a and sense. Isn't, isn't it true that the Hyksos, isn't that their, their like prime deity? Or is that Probably. something like Yes. Um, well, they actually have a king whose name is Apophthus. So you work that out in your mind, that the name of the snake who wants to destroy all of creation is a god whose name is picked up by the Hyksos. And maybe you could go back to this connection of Seth and Apophthus going all the way back to the 15th dynasty and the 17th century BCE. That would be kind of crazy interesting. But you do have those amalgamations and, and confusions happening there. So, yeah, you know. There's a, there's a rumor that when Antiochus uh, raided the temple of Jerusalem, he found the image of Set like in, in donkey form or something. For some reason, it was Set. I don't know why. There's but, pigs, uh, pigs, donkeys, um, obviously horns. that aardvark looking thing, yeah, the horns horned animals, yeah. um, the gazelle is often associated with Seth. So all, all of these these things um, become amalgamated in people's minds. And, and it's something that, the, you know, the Egyptians show them spearing Seth. If you go to the Temple of Edfu, Ptolemaic Temple, very late in, in the south of Egypt, you'll see all of these rituals about spearing Seth. And they're spearing him as a pig. They're spearing him as a, as a gazelle. And what's so sad is it was Seth who, in the sixth hour of night, is spearing Apophis on for the sun god. So it's super confusing. It's super confusing. But that's, that's the beauty of when you dig deep into these texts, you find out sometimes it's the opposite of what you think. And I, yeah. that's what I love about these. Like, uh, I'm having another scholar on, Celine Lilly, who found these ancient christian texts that has said that eve is actually the savior and that there's some there were some christian groups that thought cain was the good one because yeah. he was an offer tiller of the land sometimes these religious groups turn things on their head and change things up a little bit so yeah yeah fascinating yeah super confusing it but is. that's who we are we humans we messy humans yes well, this has been one of my, this has been great. This hour flew right by and I definitely want to do this again at some point, but um, thank you so much for your time. Is there any links that you want to promote or anything coming up that people should know about? Yeah, sure. Um, sorry about the technical difficulties earlier, um, but the, the links would be, I have a podcast called Afterlives with Ancient Egypt and um or afterlives of ancient egypt i can't remember the name of my own podcast and and i have a couple of books out so uh, my latest book is called the good kings which is all about authoritarianism in the ancient world and today so it's quite a political read and um and then a, a feminist female power book it's called when women ruled the world so you can you can find me at my squarespace page just google kara cooney kara with a k cooney with a c and I have a web presence. I'm out there. <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. I'll put those links in the description. And Great. Uh, thank, you. thank you for your time. And you have just attained True Gnosis. You have just attained True Gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you. Jesus.